You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey listeners, I'm Elisa Poteet and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. In today's episode, we're returning to the area between Yemen and the Horn of Africa. This will be the fifth podcast in our installment on the region. Now, any vessel transiting from Europe to Asia via the Suez Canal, particularly vessels carrying liquid natural gas, or as we'll refer to it in this podcast, LNG, must pass through this hazardous choke point. This is an often lawless and treacherous stretch of water where there are terrorists, pirates, and gangs. And behind the well-known regional villains are the criminal others, outsiders who would take advantage of this unending threat. The strategic importance of international shipping to national security is indisputable, but it's an opaque industry and the flag of any vessel may have nothing to do with its ownership, crew, or contents. It is arguably a serious gap in global and national security. And we're going to take it up today with a very important author. My guest is Matthew Campbell. He is Bloomberg Businessweek's Asia editor, and he's the author of an important new book, Dead in the Water, The True Story of Hijacking, Murder, and a Global Maritime Conspiracy. And Matt, I love this book, and I've been recommending it to loads of people because of everything that it describes with respect to national security and the craziness. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Before we discuss the mystery that you have set out in this book, I want you to take a minute to set the stage for us a bit. Now, back in 2011, what was the political situation in Yemen and how did that affect the body of water between Yemen and the Horn of Africa? So this book begins with a series of very strange events which occurred uh, in and around Yemen just over a decade ago. If you think back, and and you do have to think back a bit because a lot has happened since then, 2011 was really the thick of the Arab Spring. So you had these uh, civil unrest protests that began in Tunisia, spread right across the region, ultimately finding their way to Yemen, which, uh, like a lot of countries in the Middle East, was ruled by a sort of mustachioed strongman at the time, Ali Abdullah Saleh who had hung on to power very cannily for a period of decades by, uh, in part, co-opting Islamist forces within Yemen, by also convincing the U.S. and other Western countries that he was a reliable counterterrorism partner, although there were always some questions about how serious that was. But in the spring of 2011, which is where the narrative in Dead in the Water begins, it's all really falling apart. There are huge street protests There is a fair amount of just straight up civil conflict, and particularly in southern Yemen and Aden, which has always seen uh, the dominance of of the north and and Sana'a, the capital, as an imposition to be thrown off one day. Things were getting very dangerous indeed, and it was becoming an extremely chaotic and uh, unpredictable place to be. And into this fray comes a man, sort of your everyman, who was a real man, David Mockett, who sounds like a rather ordinary Brit. Tell us a little bit about him and how it is a man like David Mockett ended up in a place so lawless as Yemen. So David Mockett, who is one of the central characters of this story, was a British guy from Devon in the southwest of England, formerly a commercial sailor. Uh, He actually qualified as a ship's captain, although he never sailed as a captain, but he spent about a decade on commercial vessels. He then went ashore working in ports and in the maritime industry 
primarily in the Middle East. He spent a long time in Saudi Arabia and then ultimately found his way to Yemen. And a lot of people thought this was kind of a eccentric choice, to put it mildly. Not an easy place to live, not an easy place to raise a family. And indeed, his wife and children stayed in the UK, and, and David would sort of go back a few times a year for extended visits to his home in England. But he became uh, really a part of the community in Aden. He was among the, the tiny group of expats in that city, a few Brits and a smattering of others. He was kind of an institution. Uh, he was the guy everybody knew. There was one uh, Chinese restaurant, improbably enough, in Aden, which even more improbably could serve beer, uh, which is not something easy to find in that part of the world. And, and David would be there at least one night a week, you know, entertaining whoever might be coming through town. Often those were people in the maritime industry. So what David did was work as, as something called a marine surveyor. Now, when you uh, have a tree fall on your garage or something like that, or, or your car gets wrecked and you need to make an insurance claim, the insurance company sends someone around to look at it, you know, a claims adjuster, as they're often called, and they will take a bunch of pictures, ask a bunch of questions, assess the damage, come up with an estimate, make sure that, that the accident you've described really occurred. And then all being well, uh, they sign off and, and your money gets paid out. So David did exactly that, but on huge scale, specifically for ships and marine accidents. So when a vessel ran into trouble, two ships collided, when a tanker crashed into a pier or, or cargo was damaged, he would be called in to check it out, assess the damage, write a report, interview the key people, and report back to insurers who in the maritime world are overwhelmingly in London. And thus, he was a really critical cog in the kind of financial machinery that keeps shipping going in what is, in fact, a very important part of the world for the movement of goods, you know, whether it be physical goods or, or oil and gas. And he was quite a sympathetic, quite a likable character as you draw him. But how did Mocket come to have anything to do with a vessel known as the Brillante Virtuoso? So David was the best marine surveyor in Yemen. That was pretty much universally agreed. If you needed a complicated accident assessed, David was your guy. He would get the call from London to go and check out the scene of a fire or a collision or, or whatever it might be. So in the spring, early summer of 2011, a oil tanker called the Brillante Virtuoso carrying about $100 million of fuel oil from Ukraine to China was attacked by pirates in the Gulf of Aden. And if you can cast your mind back a little bit, this is a period when piracy was absolutely rampant in that region. There were pirate attacks something like every two or three days, often unsuccessful. They would be repelled in one way or another. But often they did, they did succeed and vessels were hijacked. And uh, the events depicted in Captain Phillips, the Tom Hanks film, which, which is how a lot of people know a bit about how piracy works, occurred in 2009. So this was just a couple of years later when the piracy epidemic was really still going very strong. And the Brillante was attacked. It was boarded. Uh, in the dead of night. And in the course of this pirate attack, there was a catastrophic explosion and fire that really all but destroyed the vessel. It was just kind of a, a burned out hulk by the end of it. And while a burned out oil tanker is many things, it's certainly an environmental hazard. It can be a, a human hazard to the crew and, and salvage personnel who try and take over and, and make sure the situation is under control. But above all, it's an insurance liability. 
in this case, about $80 million ultimately of insurance on the ship itself, another $100 million of insurance on the oil cargo. And just as uh, if you had a, a tree fall on your home, the insurance company needs someone to go take a look. And, and that was David. He was right at the top of everyone's list for that kind of job in Yemen at that time. Let's go to, you You described this, you know, suddenly there's an explosion, but there were a few clues that this wasn't just a simple terrorist attack. And without giving away too much, because I think it'll diminish the pure enjoyment that was reading this book for our listeners, just give us a, a few pieces of what was observed in terms of that accident that hinted that perhaps it was not ordinary. Well, David went out to the vessel. He took hundreds of photographs. He spoke to the chief engineer who was a key member of the crew. He, he pieced together the events as best he could. And pretty much from the start, he and others involved realized that this was an unusual case of piracy. Pirates at this time and in this place, it was largely Somali pirates, or in fact, overwhelmingly Somali pirates, uh, have an MO. They do things a certain way. They board a ship any way they can. They take the ship for ransom. They get the ship to uh, one of a few harbors in Somalia, and then they hold on to it with the crew, and they try and get a payoff. They, they get the ship owner, or more often, the insurance companies uh, of the ship's owners, to hand them some cash, and then the ship goes back. This is how it works. This is how they make money. Uh, this is the only reason Somali pirates are out there is to hold ships for ransom. But in the case of the Brillante Virtuoso, it was very strange. First of all, the attack occurred in the middle of the night, which was quite unusual. Uh, Somali pirates tend to strike in daylight. Uh, so David certainly knew that that was uh, somewhat out of the ordinary. Something else that was strange was that there had been this explosion and fire. If you're a Somali pirate, the very last thing you want is for anything to occur that would damage the value of your prize, because that ship is your ticket to hopefully millions of dollars. So you certainly don't want any harm to befall it. You certainly don't want any harm to befall the crew, not until you've at least tried to ransom them. So the fact that there'd been this fire was also unusual. And then there were other facts, too, that didn't really stack up. And David remarked on a lot of these. The pirates didn't seem to have forced their way aboard. They had somehow uh, been invited on or, or duped or, or used some sort of ruse to get onto the deck of the tanker. Again, that's very unusual. Somali pirates use uh, grappling hooks and hooked ladders to force their way onto vessels any way they can. So as David checked out this vessel, as he began to develop a picture of what he thought had occurred, he had a number of doubts, uh, not, not anything that amounted to a straight up theory of what had occurred, but certainly enough uncertainty in his mind that he thought there was more to the story, more than what he had been told. And true, and everything that you said, in addition to that, they're often remote negotiators for the pirates that largely come from Somali land into this area. So that's a lot of clues. It should have probably been, I guess, obvious that something else was amiss. But I think what your book does is it illustrates some of the big security holes that exist in the way things like vessels are flagged and staffed with crew versus something that is the ultimate true ownership. So it really describes a beneficial ownership cloud. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned? So a big part of this book is explaining how the shipping industry works. And actually, remarkably, most of us know very little about that. I, I certainly didn't know much before I began embarking on this project. 
And that's especially remarkable given that we all depend on ships for absolutely everything. Uh, there's a great book called 90% of Everything. It was written about 10 years ago for a phrase that shipping people like to use, which is that 90% of everything in your home, in your office, that you see on the street, wherever, probably got there on a boat. Although uh, air freight has picked up a little bit in the last few years, for the most part, uh, large volumes of consumer goods travel by sea. Oil and gas very much travel by sea. And yet uh, shipping is really obscure to, to most of us. Uh, we have a line in the book to the effect that it's kind of like power lines or, or, or sewers, just not some, it's receded into the background of modern life. And it's not something we think about at all, which is kind of how the ship owners like it. They prefer to operate behind a bit of a veil. And one way in which they do that is by hiding their ownership. This is something that, that absolutely astonishes people when you tell it to them. It is very easy and in fact, commonplace for the people who deal with the shipping industry, the people who service a vessel, port officials, insurers, salvage crews, whatever, to not actually know who owns a ship. Many, many, many commercial vessels are owned by anonymous shell companies in jurisdictions like the Cayman Islands or Bermuda, which typically will be incorporated just to hold one vessel. So they are one asset companies. And of course, if there's any problem with the vessel, the company can go bankrupt without implicating any other part of a corporate structure. And there are several, there will typically be several layers of financial intermediation between the actual ship and the actual owner, who uh, is likely sitting in one of the few really large ship owning nations in the world, Greece, Japan, Norway, a few others, owning an asset that is flagged or, or registered in a country like Panama or Liberia, or again, uh, the Marshall Islands. And with a crew who are probably from the Philippines or India or one of a few other developing countries. And again, operating through shell companies in a series of offshore tax havens. So it's really a secrecy bonanza in an environment where, for example, in the financial sector, banks have really bent over backwards in response to regulatory mandates over the years to do a, a huge amount of KYC and to find out exactly who their clients are. And, and anyone who's tried to open a bank account knows you, you, can't, you certainly can't do it anonymously. You absolutely can own a ship anonymously. And in fact, uh, people do it all the time. That's a little bit disturbing. So you have these several cutouts. And one of the things that we'll get to in just a minute is the fact that at least with respect to the EU sanctions, these insurance companies have been targeted and really tasked with actually understanding and knowing their customer. So it's going to be interesting to watch how that plays out. But at least in the legal press, there appear to be a lot of warnings to insurance companies from law firms that this is going to be a challenge at the very least. But the history of shipping and insurance, it does seem a bit unholy. Can you talk to us about this institution that Americans at least consider sort of august, which is Lloyd's of London? It's more a clearinghouse, I guess, than an insurance company, as I think you're going to explain. But there's sort of a feedback loop between some of the industries that they insure and danger. In other words, the specter of threats sells more policies and so on. Can you speak a bit about what you learned in that regard? Lloyd's of London is really central to insurance of all kinds and, and particularly to marine insurance. So Lloyd's is one of the oldest extant financial institutions in the world. It goes back over 300 years. And one thing to know about Lloyd's, and in fact, the first thing to know about Lloyd's is we all know that it sort of has something to do with insurance, but, but in fact, it's not an insurer and it never has been. 
what Lloyd's is, is, as you said, kind of a clearinghouse, a market. They refer to themselves as, a, as an insurance market. Uh, it is a venue where actual insurers, AIG, Prudential, the other brand names we all know, come to divvy up exposure to risks. So, so the way this works in kind of a simplified example is uh, if I want to insure an airplane, I take that need to my insurance broker who then uh, goes to Lloyd's and let's say the airplane is worth $10 million. No one insurer is likely to want that whole risk on their books. So what instead they will do, and Lloyd's facilitates this, is divide up the risk, chop it up into little pieces so that every one of the insurers who signs on, and they're, by the way, referred to as underwriters because on the old slips where this was all tracked, they would write their names one under the other, underwriter. So each of these insurers will take as much risk as they feel like they can afford to lose. And therefore, if my aircraft goes up in flames, no one company is on the hook for very much of it. And Lloyd's is just an enormous machine, essentially, for carrying out those transactions. And it's very good at it. Everything you can imagine has been insured at Lloyd's and is insured at Lloyd's. Oil platforms, space stations, uh, Bruce Springsteen's voice, because the principle is that anything with a value that could be diminished by an unexpected event can be insured at Lloyd's. So if Bruce Springsteen loses his voice for some reason, he's in line for a big payout from the Lloyd's market. But the heart of Lloyd's has always been shipping. Obviously, ships cannot leave port without insurance because uh, the seas are a dangerous place. Even today, there are accidents all the time. So uh, insurance is a crucial element of the global shipping industry. And while there are some alternatives, none of them has really got much traction. If you are operating a commercial vessel, you are generally insuring it at Lloyd's. This creates uh, some interesting relationships. Uh, certainly, Lloyd's certainly doesn't object to danger. When the seas are more dangerous, uh, that means that premiums can be higher. When uh, during uh, the Vietnam War, there were a lot of uh, attacks on commercial shipping in the Mekong Delta, Lloyd's insurers kept on writing policies. They just jacked up the prices. Of course, uh, this can get out of hand. And there, there was actually a series of episodes in the 1980s where uh, some Lloyd's insurers were really overextended due to a, a series of you know, unexpectedly calamitous events. They had to pay out more than they were expecting. And uh, there was a real crisis in the market. But for the most part, the model works. Enough comes in through premiums and uh, a sufficiently small amount goes out in claims that everyone makes very decent money. And uh, this extremely successful financial institution in the heart of the city of London keeps on turning just as it has for centuries. Right. So you know, we're looking at a situation right now where the Financial Times is reporting complaints from the insurance industry about these EU sanctions on Russian oil. And the insurance lobbyists I know in Washington made some public statements around the fact that finding ult what's called ultimate ownership versus beneficial ownership of vessels rather is almost impossible. Where do you see, based on what you've learned, how nimble would you say the industry may be to adapting to sort of this new world where sanctions against them are in place for, quite frankly, one of the first times in history? So as you mentioned, there is now this push to cut off vessels from Russia and carrying Russian oil from global insurance markets. The problem there, of course, is that insurers can very legitimately claim that they don't necessarily know who the ultimate beneficial owners of ships are. Uh, this goes back to the use of shell companies and cutouts, where in the case of the Berlanti Virtuoso, the, the tanker that is at the center of the story in, in this book, it was owned by a company called Suez Fortune. 
completely generic, doesn't mean anything, registered in the Cayman Islands. The sole directors are, are lawyers, you know, with no connection to the ultimate owners. These are classic shell companies. And if you were at Lloyd's and you were writing insurance for this vessel, all you know is that the client is called Suez Fortune and that it has an address in the Cayman Islands, which is probably just a brass plate. Uh, you don't have to go any further than that. And so to have insurance companies told by the European Union and other governments that they need to figure out who the Russians are and make sure they're not uh, writing policies for those clients is a very big change from how they have historically done business. But I think it helps uh, with describing how the insurance industry works, particularly around shipping, to ask, what if banks said the same thing? If the U.S. Treasury went to Bank of America and said, you need to cut off these hundred Russian oligarchs. And Bank of America said, well, you know, that's a very nice idea, but sorry, we don't know who holds accounts in our banks and we have no way of finding out. I don't think the U.S. Treasury would take that answer and just sort of say, oh, well, I guess we won't sanction them then. Banks have been expected for a long time to follow increasingly stringent KYC procedures, and the insurance industry has just never had to. So I don't think it's crazy to expect that Western financial institutions that are involved in financial transactions, potentially worth hundreds of millions of dollars with clients, make some effort to find out who those clients are. So I don't really buy these excuses. Certainly, the industry would like to keep operating as it has, because the way it has historically operated has been immensely profitable. But it does seem like in this day and age, and in an era of increasing compliance responsibilities for financial institutions of all kinds, this privileged status can't possibly continue. Hey, listeners, the 2021-2022 edition of the U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook is now available through the committee website. This is our eighth edition. It has been praised by General Hayden as the most authoritative, comprehensive, and up-to-date compendium of U.S. intelligence law ever, and by others in intelligence as particularly worthy of space on every national security practitioner's desk, whether in government, private practice, or law school. Check it out. It's a must-have. And added bonus, it also cross-references topics covered by national security law today. Find it in the description to this episode and at www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.